If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. These words of Jesus from the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Stop me if I'm telling your story. You learned, probably early in your life, the value and importance, the gospel of achievement. You heard the words from a parent or a teacher or a relative, you can be anything that you want to be. The world is your oyster. Make us proud. And from that point on, you set out on a life of achievement. Maybe it began in your childhood, seeking to achieve the approval of parents or the admiration of others. Maybe it was in high school, seeking to achieve certain grades or athletic recognition or social standing. Maybe it continued in college, where you sought to achieve and maintain a respectable academic image, a hardworking reputation or the approval of a, beloved, of a beloved professor. Maybe it continued into graduate school and more graduate school and tenure processes and et cetera. Or maybe the pursuit of achievement really took hold in your life once you began working. And you found yourself just committed to achieving a life of affluence or climbing your way up a corporate ladder of some kind, beefing up that resume. Or maybe it's always been relational for you, achieving a certain desirability or admiration or acceptance among friends and neighbors or measuring up to some ideal. Maybe somewhere along the way, your life became centered on achieving the image of perfect husband or perfect wife or most loyal friend or most respected member in your community. Maybe none of these exactly tell your story, but maybe they're close enough. And what I wonder about is this. Has your life been fundamentally marked and shaped by achievement? Don't get me wrong. God delights in our becoming people who do things that matter, who create or contribute to good things in our world. But achievement can so quickly and easily become a kind of relentless drive which fundamentally shapes our identity and dictates our lives. And so you've probably rightly spurned the book, but your life basically just is one ambitious pursuit of your best life now, is it not? If I've spoken at all true of your story, it's because that is exactly my story. A story of seeking to achieve, of attaining my desired life through accumulating the various pieces. A story dictated by the idol of achievement. And really a near perpetual denial that achievement even could be, probably almost always is, just that, an idol. Now, for us achievers, words like those spoken by Jesus in our gospel this morning are kind of grating. Whoever would save his life 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What is this? Is Jesus calling us to become losers? Surely not, right? Doesn't God want us to become successful, well-adjusted, prosperous people? And yet it's hard to shake Jesus' straightforward and frank words. Lose your life. Whoever would save, whoever would achieve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, Jesus is not about achievement. There's actually a technical term for that, for achieving, trying to save one's life through one's own merits, personal achievements. It's called Pelagianism. Maybe you've heard of it. It was condemned as a heresy at the Council of Carthage in 418. But it's alive and well, no doubt, today under different names in the hearts of many of us. We still kind of believe it. But the gospel that Jesus is about, which he proclaims and enacts, is not one of achievement. Instead, it's one of receivement, if I can coin that word this morning. Receiving salvation, receiving our very lives, in fact, our purpose, our meaning, fulfillment as gifts. And only after first abandoning everything at the feet of Jesus. The only life worth living, in other words, is one that's received as a gift. We find ourselves in a really interesting place in St. Luke's Gospel this morning. For several chapters, Luke has told of the ministry of Jesus, his healings and miracles and teaching. And he's been painting this portrait of Jesus' identity by telling a story. Who exactly is this man? It's a question that has, in fact, already been asked several times in St. Luke's Gospel, but no clear, definite answer has yet been given. After Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples asked, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? After hearing the commotion about this new prophet from Nazareth, Herod asks, Who is this about whom I hear such things. And now Jesus takes up the question himself. Who do the people say that I am? The disciples report the popular consensus. Some kind of prophet. We don't know which, but probably one of the old prophets. True enough, a prophet. But Jesus quickly gets to the heart of the matter. But who do you say that I am? Not the crowds, not them, you. And Peter, as he's wont to do, steps up to the plate with his confident brashness. The Christ of God, he declares. The Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Peter is theologically correct, though I kind of like to imagine I'm maybe doing something like this. The Christ of God, right? Right? That's, that's, oh yeah, okay, yes, the Christ of God. Okay, fair enough, but his bare bones answer and the absence of any further elaboration of what that might mean maybe shows that he's not exactly sure what he's saying. I mean, he knows the stories 
His people have long told about the one who is to come, the Messiah. And he knows the general expectations of his day. He probably shares in them. The Messiah would be a great deliverer, ushering in his messianic kingdom and power, driving out Rome, reigning over God's people. But increasingly, it seems like Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. Nevertheless, you can imagine the thoughts in the disciples' minds at this point once they hear that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. Has the time now come? Will Jesus inaugurate his messianic kingdom on the earth? Should we strap up, prepare for a fight? But Jesus stops them in their tracks. He commands them not to tell anyone that he is in fact the Messiah. It's a very strange command. Don't Tell anyone, don't go running off telling everyone that the Messiah is here, Jesus says, because you actually have no idea what that really means. Stick around a little bit longer, find out a little bit more about what my Messiahship, what my kingdom looks like before you go around telling everyone that it's here. Jesus, in other words, interrupts the disciples' imaginings of how the Messiah's kingdom would come to be, not through a nationalist uprising or a militant revolt or the raw exercise of power. He actually lays out a much different plan, a vision statement, if you will, for his messianic campaign that is, well, a bit underwhelming, a little uninspiring, definitely a little gloomy. He says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Probably not a message that would pull very well in any focus group that I'm aware of. But then Jesus begins to describe what it really means for him to be the Messiah. It's not what his disciples were expecting. But he begins to refine their understanding, their imagining of what the Messiah and who the Messiah is and what he's come to do. He says this, if you really want to see the kingdom of God, you really want to know what it means for me to be the Christ, you actually have to come follow me even further, even to my death. And then actually he goes even further than that. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to make my fate, your fate, my identity, your identity, my mission, your mission. In other words, if you want to know me, come after me, take up your cross and follow me. We Christians in the modern West have done a really amazing job turning Jesus's hardest sayings into trivial ones and kind of empty cliches, and bear your cross is certainly one of them, right? Cross-bearing in our day has become basically a way of talking about various life struggles, even minor nuisances, a difficult family situation, a frustrated vision of personal fulfillment, an exasperating neighbor, maybe, a nagging in-law. We claim these as our crosses to bear, But Jesus' command to take up the cross would not have come across as a flowery metaphor 
to any first century listener, certainly not to Jesus' disciples. The cross was not a pleasant symbol, a denominational logo, a necklace pendant. Right? The cross just was an instrument of execution for those who trespassed against the Roman state, the means of death for traitors and criminals. And there's no reason to think that Jesus didn't literally mean what he said. If you want to follow me, be prepared to die a shameful death by public execution. I mean, that's what happened to him. And be prepared for that every day, daily. Jesus' disciples did not hear Jesus' words as a provocative metaphor. They heard them, to steal a phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as an invitation to come and die. And that is exactly what discipleship is. It's giving up our lives right up front, taking up and bearing the cross, and every day, radical self-denial in order to cling only to Jesus. Bearing the cross is saying with St. Paul, I have been crucified with Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. So an illness, for instance, may be a very difficult thorn in the flesh, but it's not a cross to bear. A financial sacrifice may be a troublesome thing, but it's not a cross to bear. A tiring relative or a vexing friend may be a burden, but not our cross to bear. Taking up our cross means nothing less than laying down our entire lives at the feet of the cross, giving up every right, privilege, need, prerogative to find true life and freedom in Jesus. In other words, to take up the cross is to crucify the idols of achievement. The cross is our best cure to our self-deceiving notions of accomplishment and success and merit. Because in the cross, what we see is that life and salvation have already been achieved and by someone else, the crucified and risen Christ. There's nothing left to do. No achievement worth seeking greater than the achievement of his self-offering. The only thing left for us is to relinquish everything that keeps us from that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The promise of Jesus is this, that he will give us abundant life, salvation, flourishing, goodness, beyond anything we can imagine. We just can't achieve it. We have to receive it. And to receive it, we have to let go of everything else. We have to lay down our lives to receive his, 
we have to take up the cross. When I was younger, I remember attending a youth conference, the end of which offered an invitation to lay down our lives before God in an act of self-surrender and trust to take up the cross. In my tradition, we called this an altar call. And so at this conference, I went forward at the end to the altar to commit myself to the way of the cross. I don't know that much actually changed in my life after that. And so following year, the time for the annual youth conference came around again. Another altar call, another going forward, rededication. It seemed like maybe the first one didn't quite take, so I, I tried it again. A few months went by, and then I found myself back in the same patterns of self-centeredness and pride, and, well, frankly, the constant and unrelenting pursuit of achievement. I remember thinking, how many of these altar calls do I need to do before it really takes? And what I've come to realize since is that actually I was not doing nearly enough. I was not making enough trips to the altar. One of the wondrous things about the Catholic Christian tradition is that we get a chance to respond to an altar call every single week. We are invited to approach the altar of our Lord, both in order to lay down our lives and to take up his, to lose our lives in order to save them, and to make this pattern of self-offering and receiving, this is the the dialectical movement at the center of the Eucharist, self-offering and receiving, we get to make that the weekly rhythm of our lives. Perpetual altar calls. Now in a little bit, we will pray this prayer at the altar. Here we offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. And then when we come to this altar, we will offer ourselves entirely. We will lose our lives. But then here, what we pray immediately after that prayer of self-offering, we humbly pray that all who partake of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with your grace and heavenly benediction, and be made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. We lose our lives in order to find his, and to receive it as a gift. Friends, as we approach the altar of our Lord this day, let us lay aside our pride, our ambitions, our idols of achievement, and let us listen and hear instead the gospel, not of achievement, the gospel of receivement. Let us receive at this altar the life of Christ that he may dwell in us and we in him forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.